Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health podcast. I am Josiah Meyer, and this is part two of my interview with Brian Pengali. And uh, if this is the first one you're listening to, you need to go back and listen to the first one because uh, he really privileged us by telling us about his experience of growing up gay in evangelicalism and uh, his journey of finding acceptance with himself, uh, finding acceptance within the Christian community. And, um, and really just for me, I, this is the first time I've had a, I've had this conversation. I've had a few conversations with, um, gay or, um, well with gay people. Um, but you're somebody that has really processed it and, and you're able to talk about it in somewhat of a detached way and an informed way as you have, um, a degree in counseling. And I did want to start with your story because we need to start with, with what is real, you know, the Mm. the real on the ground. This is what it feels like. This is, you know, the story, this is the real person. Mm. And then we can talk about the ideas. And I think that if we get that backwards, we're going to have trouble. Uh, We can't start with ideas and then be like, Oh, hold on a second. You don't fit. Um, I had a thought experiment with my wife as I was talking about the difference between realism and rationalism in philosophy. Uh, philosophy is a bit of a hobby of mine and uh, said, you know, rationalists, if, if you said there's a sunflower there and there's a perfect circle here or a perfect circle in your mind, if you can think about a perfect circle or there's a sunflower, which one is a better circle? I mean, the circle in your mind is going to be a perfect circle. Right. But the sunflower is real. It's not perfect, but it's real. And that's the difference, you know, in philosophy, Plato is a rationalist. He's in his mind. He's got perfect ideas. But when it comes to reality, sometimes it doesn't work. And Mm -hmm. realists, you know, Aristotle and, and Thomas Aquinas and others were realists. Here's the world. The ideas in my mind aren't perfect, but we have to confront the world for what it is. And, um, I don't know why I'm getting distracted on this, but it, 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 what's relevant about this is that we're in a modern era of philosophy, which is based on Rene Descartes, which is very much rationalistic. And our evangelical system is very much focused on let's get the ideas right. And then we're going to have perfection. And then, you know, right. they'll ask the theologian off in his ivory tower, what is truth? And then he'll come down from on high and tell us how to live our lives. And it doesn't always work. Um, but at some point we got to talk about these ideas because this is where people live. This is what evangelicalism is, is ideas. Um, and so I want to talk to you about, um, two, two major headings and then there'll be sub points underneath. Uh, the two headings are things evangelicals say, right. Um, agree or disagree. And you have this list in front of you. Um, and then things that evangelicals tell gay or LGBTQ uh, two plus, etc. cetera, uh, things that Christians tell them to do. So, um, we'll go through these. Uh, you have the list in front of you, which one, right. or even things evangelicals say, where do you want to start on that? What do you think is the most significant thing that you want to start with, with things evangelicals say to, um, LGBTQ people? I guess the thing I would say the most is um or the 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 thing that i come up against the most is actually not on the list 
Um, it, it, but it really starts from, it says, the Bible is clear that dot, dot, dot. Um, and I, I generally think if you're reading this and saying the Bible is clear on it, you haven't read enough. <laughs> or the in my understanding, the Bible is clear, but it's different verses that we're looking at here. Mm -hmm. So what usually gets pulled out when we're talking about the issue of homosexuality, the verses that got thrown at me the most growing up were uh, a smattering versus in the, the LGBT plus community, we, we call them the clobber texts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Leviticus 18, if a man lies with a man as he would with a woman, he must be put to death. Um, Romans chapter one gets quoted a lot um, and it talks about how, um, you know, people were rejected God and because they rejected God, God gave them over to their base desires and thus they burned with lust for men for men and women for women. Um, and uh, then also uh, a lot of stuff from first Corinthians chapter six talking about do not be deceived none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God and there's a long list and and uh, the the on that list um, a lot of modern interpretations uh, translate it homosexual or homosexual offenders in the original Greek it was arsenikoite and malakoi um, and it's funny how the translation of those words have changed over the 2000 years of Christianity, what, what those words were. Like I was telling in my story growing up, we used the word sodomite <laughs> to translate those, those words um, and, and tied things back to the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, all of those texts are important. I don't want to be one of those people who is just dismissive of texts and say, well, you know, oh, oh, that's Old Testament, that doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. No, I take all of scripture is God-breathed and important and needs to be listened to. However, sometimes when we say that, what we mean is our translation of those things yeah. is God-breathed. Mm -hmm. And that is not true. Um, and there's a lot of times where we have to stop and think, and we have to ask, what else does the Bible say? So, I mean, this could be each of these verses, I could take a whole podcast <laughs> and dig into. And I'm not even, I'm not a theologian at heart. I'm a youth pastor. I'm very much about the praxis of how to live things out. Mm -hmm. um, the, the theology thought experiments are interesting to me, but they're never been the thing that have revved my engines. I've had to dig into them to be able to answer a lot of things. You know, the, I will say the Levitical passages, there's a whole conversation we have to have about this is Old Testament Levitical code. Why do we, why do we keep harping on this? But I've never heard a sermon about, you know, women's sexuality during their periods, which is in the same passage of scripture, <laughs> you no, know. The, there, there's a lot of, that's a so much more complex issue than just saying the Bible says it's wrong. That That's the answer to it. First um, Corinthians 19, I mean, the words arsenikoite and malakoi are used in that verse and one other verse in a similar like list of sins and are not found anywhere else in the Bible or in extant Greek. It, it seems almost as if Paul coined phrases for himself 
Mm. Um, they, they do call back to the Leviticus passages, uh, but it's really difficult because we don't have any other texts that use those words that give us a clear understanding of what they are. So much of our interpretation of those words are what we go into assuming they mean we project onto them. Um, so we need to be very careful um, biblically about what we build onto that. Um, Romans chapter one to me is a very linchpin kind of chapter and verse, um, largely because what it describes as the causation of homosexuality is so alien to my own experience. Mm. So Paul is talking here about Christian, uh, not, he's not talking about, but he's actually looking at unbelievers. He's looking at the, the, um, the pagan culture, and he's actually building a rhetorical argument where he's, he's, he's speaking to self-righteous Jewish people. And in chapter one, he's goading them, getting an example, uh, pointing to other people saying, look how bad they are. Right. Pulling them into this argument of them going, yeah, yeah, they're bad. Building to chapter two, when he's going to do a switcheroo on things and say, and you're just as bad as them. And so anytime we talk about Romans chapter one without understanding Romans chapter two, we, we're missing out on things. Um, but understand even in this, it, my theory of Romans chapter one is he's actually writing Romans from Corinth and he's looking at idolical practice in Corinth he writes from Cor uh, to Corinth in other parts of the Bible and talks about the practices that were going on there. There was uh, a temple to uh, the goddess of love and that was at the core of cultic practices at that time. And the way you worshiped the goddess was by sending your children, male and female children, to do stints of prostitution within the temple. Um, and that it was your act of devotion to God. You would send your child to the, the temple and they would wait there and people could pay money to come in and sleep with them. And you had to, because you were devoted to the goddess, you had to sleep with whoever showed up. And this was their idea of what following God meant. This is a horrific practice and Paul yeah. is right to be appalled at it. And so when Romans chapter one talks about they became so deceived in their idolatry that this kind of thing seemed like a good idea to them. If you take that, it makes sense. Now, taking my story of someone who accepted Christ at four years old, grew up with an evangelicalism and every part of my heart wanted to follow God Um and yet I found myself gay. When you read Romans chapter one, and it says that they're gay because they were, you know, they had idolatry. And so that God gave them over to their lust. I, I couldn't, that just, whatever Romans chapter one was talking about, it wasn't talking about what I was experiencing growing up as a Christian in the church who struggled with homosexuality. Um, and there's a lot of places in the Bible where we have a text that is inspired from God and speaking to a thing, but when we shove it into contexts where it wasn't actually about that, we end up getting things that are very warped. Um, so my understanding of these scriptures was they were speaking to a specific practice within that culture and time, using it as an example and saying no to it. Um, 
does that mean those verses speak at all times to everything throughout Christianity of people who are attracted to the same sex and how they should live? No. <laughs> um, there, there's whole discussions of, it's not that those verses are wrong. It might be that those are not the verses to apply to things. Now, my theological transformation People assume when I say that I used to be against uh, inclusion of gay people within the church and switch to supporting it and supporting gay marriage and, and various other things, people always assume that if someone changes their opinions on these things, they must be doing it because they are intellectually lazy or they just want an excuse for their own unrighteousness, basically. <laughs> um, and so when other people who are gay have gone through this and had a change in opinion, they're like, you just wanted to get married to a man and you're looking for scripture to, you know, tell your itching ears what they want to hear. I I'm a good counterpoint to that because me changing my theological opinion didn't change the fact that I'm married to a woman and have chosen to stay committed to that marriage. Um, I didn't gain anything by changing my opinion on this. In fact, I lost a lot because it, it basically destroyed my ability to be ordained within the church <laughs> and, and I got nothing out of it, but I did it because I was convinced that it, that it was harming people and it, and it was not what Jesus or the Bible was teaching. The verse that transformed me actually came down to uh, a story in Matthew where, uh, is it 11 or 12? Jesus and his disciples are walking through the wheat fields on the Sabbath day and the disciples are hungry and they start plucking grain and eating it as they walk. And the Pharisees are always alert for anything outside of the law, see this and become offended and go, why are you allowing your disciples to do this? Don't you know it's unlawful to, you know, pluck grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus could have responded to that and said, it's not unlawful. That is not part of the law. That was not commanded anywhere. That is an additional rule that you as Pharisees have added on to the law. Instead, Jesus doubles down, goes back and says, um, gives an example of David eating the showbread, which was holy and set aside for the priests and only to be used in the temple. People who had defiled the rites of the temple for unholy things were you know, killed in many stories in the Old Testament, some of them by fire from God, you know, and so this was a clearly unlawful thing. But David on the run being persecuted by Saul is running for his life. The priest hides him in the tabernacle and they have no food to give them as they're heading into the wilderness. So they give them the showbread instead, which was holy and dedicated to God and say, eat this. And Jesus uses this example and says, now go learn what these words mean. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. My whole hermeneutic growing up and, and impl um, implicitly and then explicitly when I went to Bible college said that you know that something is true, your faith is true when you sacrifice for it. 
So if you are unclear what something in the Bible says, whatever thing is most costly and hard for you to do, do that thing. And that is how you show that you are truly following Jesus by sacrificing and giving up a thing that is hard. So anytime we were going at a biblical text, it was whatever is hardest for you to follow, that is the hermeneutic of what God wants from you, because that is how you show love. Jesus's hermeneutic is the opposite of that. He says, compassion and love is the hermeneutic that we interpret scripture through. So when determining whether we should continue to follow a rule or not, we don't look at, at it and say, what is the hard thing? Now do that and follow Jesus. We say, are we hurting other people? If we are, stop doing it because that is not actually what God wants you to do. The love hermeneutic of Jesus became the central thing in how I understood what I was doing. And this is the much harder hermeneutic to learn out, live out because when your hermeneutic is, here are the rules, apply them 100% of the time, and it doesn't matter who was hurt by them because following the rules is, is the most important thing, then you can have absolutes. But if love is your ethic, and sometimes you do something and it shows love, and sometimes you do that same thing and it harms people, that's really difficult to know what to do in a situation. But we know this within relationships. So for example, my parents tried very hard to be fair and always treat myself and my brothers the exact same way. But I'm very different from my brothers. So things that helped my brothers thrive and grow caused me tremendous pain <laughs> and, and um, were not helpful. You know, my brothers were both into sports. And so my parents took them to sports and encouraged them. And even when they didn't feel like it, sometimes my parents would say, stick with it. You're going to the, and they would pick it up again and love it. And it was a blessing to them. And they tried to force me to do sports and I was miserable and I hated it. And I cried until they finally gave up because making me do sports was not going to be a helpful thing in my life. <laughs> if we know how to do this with children, believing that God is good enough, that he doesn't demand us to do these things to our children, should shape how we respond to things. So what convinced me in this, it wasn't about me getting out of my marriage or making things easier in my life. It was about, I was working as a youth pastor, teaching the things I had always been taught. I had actually found peace in a, a marriage relationship with a woman. But as I mentored other young people who were gay growing up in the church, even though I wasn't screaming at them the way I had been, you know, growing up told that you were going to hell if you were gay. What I still saw this, what the church was saying to them, even though they said, we love you, you just have to be celibate and try to be straight and you can be part of the church and this is your sacrifice to Jesus. And what I consistently saw is even when that was done in loving churches that genuinely cared about the people they were speaking to, those youth grew up hating themselves, deeply suicidal, all sorts of negative outcomes were coming out of that. When youth would leave those churches and either go to other churches or leave the church altogether, where they were told, 
there is, you know, we will accept you. You can have a relationship with someone of the same gender. They stabilized, they stopped trying to kill themselves. They stopped over drinking. They stopped all of these negative behaviors and became healthy people. And I said, hey, maybe if what we're doing is making people try and kill themselves and it's not bringing health and blessing to their life, then doing this isn't loving them, enforcing a rule. So to me, it's not about, even if I said that, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 did imply to all um, same-sex erotic behavior in the original author's intent, I don't think it did, but even if it does, if how we're enforcing that rule, which was meant to cause blessing, is actually causing harm and destruction, then we need to rethink our response to it. And doing that is actually following Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot there. I'm not sure if I can respond to all of it without, uh, <laughs> without stealing your thunder, because I want to hear you talking more. Um, but what I heard you say, as far as looking at those specific passages, I think, and I'm not real deep in this yet. I do want to have more guests and, and think more clearly on this. There's a podcast in our series called I brainwashed myself about how <laughs> there's certain topics that I didn't, I literally trained myself not to think on them because I mm -hmm. knew if I think too much about this and I get the wrong ideas, then I can't sign doctrinal statements and then I'm out. Right. So this is one of the topics where it's like, Oh, you know, you got a master's, you should know about this. And it's like, no, because no matter which side I choose, you know, half the world's going to hate me. So I've just right. said, I don't know, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and now we've, I'm we've created. And strangely, this has become this generation's litmus test of being yes. in or out. Yeah. If you, if you are, if you don't agree, and this happens on both sides, like both liberal sides and, and conservative sides. And even I was telling you earlier, 10 years ago, I found there was more space for conversations within denominations. And now this is the thing that decides whether you are yep. in or out, whether you agree. Yep. And you can't question, don't dialogue, because dialogue is going to end you up, you know, it, yep. it's, it's unsafe. You just have to follow what you are told. And that is it. And the, um, I would say, ideological uh, fundamentalism exists on both sides. And Absolutely. That's something that bothers me as I'm like, okay, so I, I could come into this issue, but there's things I'm looking at on the left and I'm like, okay, well, I'll come this far, but there's some things that don't seem healthy and I'm not going to, I'm not going to list them, but I'm just going right. to say like, there's some things that I hear left leaning people say about this issue that I'm like, I don't see that as a healthy thing. Um, no, I'm not an expert, but it, it seems right. It's because I know what ideologically driven people do, and I mm -hmm. see it happening over there. And I'm saying I'm not just going to flip from being a, a right wing fundamentalist to being a left wing fundamentalist. I want to be somewhere right. in the middle, and that means that both sides are going to hate me. But anyways, I'm getting distracted. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm really a centrist at heart and being centrist means you get hated by everyone. Yeah. Um, there, there isn't this, on the one hand, I truly understand when you have been a victim of trauma and discrimination and of abuse your whole life, um, 
to survive, you have to start cutting things off. And there are a lot of people who are not in spaces where they can, you know, the fact that you want to debate whether their relationship is valuable or not, they're not here for that. They're like, I have been told my entire life that it's bad and it's good that you want to process, but I don't have space in my life who, for people who are questioning my relationship, like I'm just done. No, I can't do that. So sorry, it's over. And in some ways, this is what I feel called to is to be a person who says I am a safe person for you to process on both sides. At the same time, if we just shut off and cut down everyone who is not yet what, what we believe, you know, I would be cutting off myself from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly 30 years ago. Like the journey for me has been this long progression of things. And if at any point I had been cut off and no one was willing to talk to me anymore, I would have just gone back to where I was. Mm -hmm. So maintaining respectful dialogue between sides and giving people space to be wrong about things is really important. But the ground rules for that kind of dialogue means both sides have to, you can't expect someone else to entertain the fact that they might be wrong on things if you're not willing to entertain it yourself. And this is one of the huge problems of evangelicalism is we, evangelism is about asking everybody else in our life to assume that their belief system is completely wrong while we maintain complete security and refuse to entertain that we might be wrong on things. (laughs) Um, And it's very hard for that to happen when that kind of power balance exists between the people who are telling and the people who are hearing. Uh, and I realize how that exists in this. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping that dialogue open is, is so helpful or well, so necessary. And um, okay. So I want to recap what you said, and then I want to ask you another question. Um, And I know, and you know that these issues are really huge uh, and Mm -hmm. we've discussed that we're not going to try and, pretend to have all the answers about these biblical questions you, that's right. what the internet is for people <laughs> um, but uh yeah. what you had briefly okay well actually you didn't completely say this but i've heard this in other discussions that um like clearly heterosexual sexuality has a good side and a dark side right mm-hmm. and homoerotic sexuality has a good side and a dark side as well and mm-hmm. it seems as though, from what you're saying, that what is being um, rebuked and called out as sin in the Bible is the dark side of homosexual behaviors. Is that fair? Yes. A fair summary of what you're saying about Romans 1? Right. Yes. Whatever it was. And so when the Bible speaks to the goodness and ordered creation of heterosexual healthy heterosexual sexuality because god created that doesn't mean that there's things that fall outside of that are automatically bad Mm -hmm. um at the same time just because there are bad and concerning behaviors about homoerotic behavior that the bible talks about at various times always seemingly connected to you know cultic practices and and um uh idolatry doesn't mean that there are no healthy ways that those things can exist within Christianity. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, but and this is part of a much larger discussion that I know you've you've done somewhat on your your podcast already about how we talk about sex in evangelicalism is incredibly narrow and broken. And so yeah. out of that, it it leads to all of these other things as well. Yeah. And I'm not going to fix that on this podcast, but we yeah, we're, we, of, we have no way we have time to go through. We all have that. a lot of episodes on uh, purity culture and this, this discussion right. to me, you've mentioned purity culture, but like, I just, it seems like you're your struggle sounds like my struggle, but on steroids, <laughs> yeah. uh, because yeah. I, you know, I was told, you know, as a 13 year old boy, uh, if you have sexual thoughts for a girl, then you've basically raped her in your mind, you know, right? like that's me thinking back and putting pieces together. That's basically the message I was communicated. And also masturbation is a sin. And also if you have a wet dream, that's a sin. And, you know, it's just, so how do you, how do you handle it? You know, like, right. Like it's So basically to be a Christian, you have to become non-sexual. And Unless we literally you're reproducing. had conversations with each other about that. <laughs> like it would just be easier if God would just cut it off. Yeah. It. Like, because it's impossible to live in purity if purity means having no sexual thoughts. Well, and, and that ripples out in unique ways for, for LGBT Christians because um, so if evangelical culture is all about keeping you pure, and the way you do that is divide everyone into gender separated things because that's where you're safe. What do you do when what you're attracted to is your same gender? Mm-hmm. Um, we, so as, as a Christian who was open about my sexuality and because I was married to a woman, I was seen as safe mm-hmm. and, and allowed into things, but suddenly they don't know what to do with me. So I lost my job at a, at a Christian camp because of this. So they said, we know you and we respect you and we have no doubts that you're doing anything with the kids and, and we hear your story and high you and hold you in high respect, but you're not allowed to go on to into the boys' cabins anymore because if you struggle with being attracted to, we wouldn't put a, 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 a male leader in a female cabin so we can't put a gay leader in a, a cabin full of guys because we're putting you into a place of temptation. And you can't be camp director if you can't go into the dorms. So, and you can't be a counselor if you can't be on the dorms. So the only job you're allowed to do at camp is in the kitchen. Wow. And we'll put you in a cabin by yourself. And I was like, no, like, <laughs> and I had been the director of this camp for seven years, very successfully had grown a, a struggling ministry into a thriving ministry. I'd mentored all of the leaders at this camp and then suddenly was told, no, you can't do this ministry anymore because purity culture didn't know what to do with someone like yeah. me. Um, and that became a threat to their understanding of, of how to do things. And, and, the, and so then being told, well, you can be part of the church and we'll accept you here, but you can't be friends with girls because being friends with girls, uh, as a guy, you can't be friends with the opposite sex. All of our rules are against that. 
Oh, but you can't be friends with guys either because that could lead you into struggling with being attracted to them. Um, so all, so really what we were telling gay Christians within our community is you just, it's just you and Jesus and you should cut yourself off from all other people. And that's the only way to follow Jesus. And that's an incredibly destructive message to send yeah. to people. Um, the end result of this was not then that there were no gay people at camp. I left um, and I know <laughs> at least half a dozen people that were gay at that camp the next year, they all just went deeply into the closet and no one knew that they were gay. So they had no structure, no accountability, no support, no help, which actually made things less safe than it would have, you know, having them be open about things. And if you are growing up in the church and you know that in order to stay, you have to cut yourself off from all community and support in your life, you will fall into despair. That is a normal human. I mean, just look with COVID, how people are dealing with being cut off from community in this way. We're raising a whole subset of our church, telling them that there is no way that they will be acceptable for community. Of course, they try and kill themselves under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But because we haven't even interrogated where our rules of sexuality comes from, cross applying to how that affects LGBT people is not even in the conversation for them yet. <laughs> yeah, and like in the previous podcast that you did with uh, the Don't Repeat This podcast, you had really dug deep into um, suicide. And that is mm -hmm. something that we talk about a lot. That's part of the discussion about LGBTQ is people's mental health and the fact that um, LGBTQ youth commit suicide or attempt suicide at like exponentially more than, than their peers. Right. And um, of course the Christians will spin that as well. I guess it's mentally healthier to be heterosexual. So there you go. Um, which is, which is actually the opposite of, of what is true in things because We've done studies comparing LGBT people who succeed and thrive in life to LGBT people who okay. self-harm, commit suicide, and things like that. And the number one most distinct difference between them is their connection to a religious community. Interesting. So LGBT people who are in a religious community and family, religious families that reject them go through, uh, like, it's like three times more likely to attempt suicide. Wow. Um, uh, much higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse. Um, much higher rates of unprotected sex. <laughs> um, when they move out of those communities into accepting communities, we see stark decreases in all of those negative behaviors. Um, at the same time, ones that are raised in families that are accepting of them from the get-go have much lower rates of all of those things happening than the ones who were involved in churches. Um, so it's um, not that being gay inherently makes you 
you know, it makes you suicidal. It's that being gay in unaccepting communities where you have no script of a, a hopeful future of you belonging and being accepted that makes you hugely at risk for all of those things. Now, individual stories get messy this way. Like Christians love to hear the story about the people who were involved in, a, in, in an unhealthy gay relationship and their life was a disaster and they came to Jesus, got married to a woman and leveled out. And there are several Christians who have made, um, made, their, uh, made their whole life selling the stories like that and saying, I used to be gay and then Jesus saved me and I became like this. Mm-hmm understand that those stories are outliers and there are very few people like that. The vast majority of ones are the ones who grow up in the church, are miserable because they're gay in the church, and when they leave, actually find or go to places that accept them, find healthier things. It's not that both stories don't exist. I could also tell you, I can tell you stories of people who were non-Christians and who were miserable and coming to Jesus changed their life for the better. I can tell you stories of people who were Christians and were miserable and converting to a different religion or becoming atheist made them happy. (laughs) Here's the thing. There's no one story that explains everyone's situation and applies to everyone. And there's danger when we try and take stories, even my story and apply it to everybody. What I will say as a counsel, as someone who's done counseling with people who are um, working through their issues of sexuality, what seems to be the most determining factor and positive outcome is whether they they feel free to, as they explore that whatever the outcome is, they're going to be safe and accepted. Mm-hmm. So I've had youth that questioned whether they're gay and came out with, no, I'm not actually gay. Part of it is we, we have this message in our culture that if you're ever attracted to another male, you must be gay. That's just who you are. Mm-hmm. Or uh, yeah, I had youth come into my office and say things like, uh, I think I'm gay. And I'm like, so tell me more about that. And they're like, like, uh, they're like, well, um, I was with my hockey team and we were all taking a shower afterwards. And there was a bunch of naked guys around and I got an erection. So I guess I'm gay. And I'm like, so when you think about girls, do you get erections? Oh yeah, all the time. (laughs) When you think about who you want to date, oh, definitely girls okay, you're not gay, you're 15. You can have erections for no reason whatsoever. You could be thinking about guys, girls, coffee tables, it wouldn't matter. You just have erections because you're 15 and you know whatever else happens to be going on around that can be confusing, you know? But so sexuality is so much more complex than we make it out to. But what they needed to know is that if it came out that they were gay, they were going to be just as safe as if they come out as straight. Um, That they're still going to be accepted in their community, that there is hope for them, that they're, you know, because sexuality is confusing, there are variable degrees of flexibility and fluidity to it. Our understanding of it changes over time. 
all of these things are true. What is most important towards health is actually the, do I have a safe place where I'm going to be accepted and that, that I know I will be safe, however I figure this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just, I appreciated the what you said at the beginning of this, that there's been studies that literally it's being in the Christian community that typically I would say the vast majority do not accept, um, are not affirming towards homosexual. Yeah. Or LGBT. Um, the, the research there is from the family acceptance okay. project. It's the university of California and uh, San Francisco. I think that was done from really, really good work. Um, there's a lot of, the hard thing in this, and it used to be my job to read articles about sexuality and then teach them to the church. Mm-hmm. And I was hired to support the church's, you know, traditional biblical understanding of things. And so they would give me, and, and at the time, um, Focus on the Family was publishing lots of stuff and saying science backs our position on this. Mm-hmm. So it was my job to read this stuff and use it to do apologetics to support our position. Yeah. The dissonance I hit was I was trained to to look at statistics and see and studies and see if they were well done. And the more I started digging into the studies that we were given to support our position, they were horrible studies. Mm. They, they, they were of no value whatsoever. Some of them, they were literally made up statistics. Mm. And what was disconcerting for me is as I started bringing this up, people within the church didn't care whether they were good studies or not. They just wanted them to keep quoting them because they supported them. Yeah. And any study that didn't support them, they would just find an excuse not to pay attention to and throw it away. And I was like, I was taught that God is in the truth and I never have to be afraid of the truth. So you know, and truth is always way, studies are always way more complex than the media likes it. They, they like saying like, we found the gene that made you gay. No, we haven't. <laughs> it's way more complex than that. But what I found was people didn't want the truth. They wanted sound bites that backed up their position that they have decided they already wanted to keep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and were willing to sacrifice people in order to keep their position. And that was the thing that made me said, I can't be part of this. No, this is not God. This is not love. I I can't do this. I will not lie to keep a position that's harming people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, things that we've talked about on this podcast. And something I I would like to talk at some point is, is how those sorts of thoughts back up typical positions like six-day creationism or mm-hmm. some of these doctrines that if you study them pretty soon you figure out actually the science is not as strong as what they told you in youth group <laughs> but if well, you yeah really that was the that thing growing up i was told life. science agrees with us yeah. it's just the evil liberal university professors who warp the science that tells us that it doesn't fit and the frustrating and then you meet the campus, like christian scientists who believe yeah. in God and are fully dedicated and are like, yeah, the sci- no, the, the science doesn't meet this. And you realize the distortions that people like Ken Ham do to science in order to make it sound like, you know, it's the selective edit. We've decided what the truth is. 
anything we find that seems to support that, we will quote and claim science as our armor in this, but any science that doesn't match us, we, we will ignore or say is a lie or discard. Yeah. Science is only a tool that, that we follow when it already agrees with what we've decided we want. I'll, I'll say to be fair of this, this is a human thing. This is not a, that's not a, a, a fundamentalist thing. It's, it's all of us do this. Good science recognizes that even scientists do this. We only listen to the evidence that agrees with what we already think and what we want to, which is why you have to be so rigorous about challenging yourself and having other people look through your stuff who don't share your biases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. And, um, And so that's why it's so important, as you said, like there's anecdotal experience, right? Here's the example. Here's one person that this happened to, but a real scientific study would take a representative sample. And then right. theoretically, they would even have double blind, you know, a control right. group. Yeah. And they, you know, there's a certain way that you do studies. You don't just be like, hey, my uncle Bob did this and it worked for him. I mean, that's right. how that works at the coffee table. And there is some value to anecdotal information, but when you're trying to make informed decisions, you want to have real studies. And unfortunately- so when we, we talk about um, reparative therapy and people changing their orientation. Mm -hmm. um, there are Christian authors who have made a career out of being professionally ex-gay. I can't judge them because that's really how I got started in my career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and their stories are valid and they are their stories, but it's important to take those stories in, um, in the context of a larger thing. So if you hear my story and say that me being married to a woman worked for me, um, not in the way everyone else thought it was going to, but it, it has actually worked. Um, but when you look at out of a hundred people that went through the same ministry that I did, that got married, if 97 of them ended up divorced and hurting their families and everyone around them, maybe focusing on my story isn't the most important story. Now, the thing is, for a long time, I was allowed to speak in the church, but they wouldn't allow me to bring my friends who had negative experiences to tell their story. And then, in fact, when I started telling their stories, then the places stopped inviting me. <laughs> and we have this bias where we only let the people who we already agree with come in and talk about subjects. Yeah. And that's really problematic because then we have no frame of reference to understand how we're hurting other people. If you only listen to if if the only way you'll listen to someone is if they'll agree that what you're doing isn't hurting anyone, then you're never going to measure how you're actually hurting other people. Yeah. And what's frustrating to me, as we were talking about six day creationism, for example, you know, as a campus pastor, there is actually a way to reconcile the Bible with contemporary science. Yeah. But that message would turn off all my donors right? If I yes. just start on Facebook, Hey, you know, like not, you know, six day creationism is not the only way to see it. I'm actually an old earth creationism. I'd like you to meet, um, uh, you know, William Lane Craig and I forget, um, 
his name at the tip of my tongue. Anyway, so there's some great scholars in older mm-hmm. creationism, evolutionary creationism. There's other ways of seeing it. And this is so life-giving to my students. But if you want to stay in ministry, you need to keep certain people happy, right? Yes. And unfortunately, this and happens I, all the time. And, and it even protects us from the Bible because there are certain right. things in the Bible that you can't say because, you know, you'll, you'll get outed. Uh, you'll lose your job. And so I think that's a helpful thing just to point out. I do want to get back to, I want to get back and ask you a question, but finish what you're Sure, doing. go ahead. Um, so th- for things that evangelicals say, I've summarized four into one point is uh-huh. that, um, I'll, I'll use an evangelical phrase here. Okay. Brace yourself. Mm-hmm. The gay lifestyle. <laughs> right so as opposed to you know a gay orientation there's the gay lifestyle right. which means that you're actively you know having sex uh with the same gender so you know i'm sorry for that you can respond to that in a second but the gay lifestyle is unhealthy all right uh-huh. so what, these are things that evangelicals will say because as evidence they will say well look it's caused by trauma the only reason you're attracted to uh the same gender is because of childhood trauma or perhaps bad parenting it's harmful to the body um you know as far as um penetration can cause yeah they're talking about anal sex yes okay (laughs) thank you for saying that it's awkward but uh um it'll be unsatisfying as evidenced by uh you can look at statistics and um you know they're gay relationships statistically are shorter lived than heterosexual relationships. Um, And there's a link to mental illness. Uh, Look, heterosexuals have this level of suicide, LGBTQ people, this level. Therefore, for all these reasons, uh, in air quotes, the gay lifestyle is unhealthy. I'd love to hear you. Right. So part of the problem of this is what is the gay lifestyle and what has created the gay lifestyle. Um, Number one, the idea that all gay people have the same lifestyle is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've got my friends that are living in Seattle and, you know, one is a pastor and the other one works for a charity and they're raising their dogs and they're in a, you know, and, and they are the, the, some of the most, um, wonderfully boring people in a lot of ways you know it's not about wild parties it's not about orgies it's it's about they're sharing a life together i i can point to gay couples that are you know university professors and and um doctors and uh you know uh any position you can think out there. I know gay people who are doing it and their lives are, are just really mundane and boring. Um, I can show you gay couples who have been together for 30 years. And the only reason they haven't been together longer was because they weren't allowed to be together. (laughs) You know, we say gay relationships don't last. If you were not allowed, if you were never given a map as a child that said that this was even an option, that this would be recognized, of course you haven't been in a long-term relationship. If you had to hide your relationship to be accepted in your 
family and keep your job. Of course you weren't in a long-term relationship. But what we have seen plenty of evidence of is that when gay people are given maps of how they can be in stable relationships, they do go into stable relationships. Those relationships are not more stable than heterosexual relationships. There's a lot of unhealthy gay relationships out there or, you know, um, there's a lot of unhealthy straight relationships out yeah. there. If half of all straight marriages end in divorce, you know, and they have all of society's blessing and strength going with it, what do we expect from relationships that have to fight against the grain on all of those different things? Um, it's true that being in gay relationships are, is not the magical answer to everything. I was in a documentary when I got married that contrasted myself and two of our really good friends who were also involved in the same ex-gay ministry of us. And it, it paired kind of our parallel stories. Um, 15 years later, Anna and I are still married and the, the gay couple is divorced. Um, you could look at that and say, oh, see? But for every story like mine, I can tell 97 stories of how they ended very badly. And for every gay divorce I know, I know a gay couple that's been happily together for 50 plus years and raising their two dogs and, you know, in their perfectly manicured garden. That's a stereotype, but it's a stereotype for a reason. <laughs> you know, like... I can show you people on all sorts of different things. What I care about is what can we do to increase the likelihood that people will have healthy relationships and lives. lives. Um, telling gay people that they need to become straight doesn't make them more likely to end up in a healthy relationship. It makes yeah. them more likely to kill themselves, fall into despair, and you know, get married for the wrong reasons and end up divorcing down the road. Yeah. Um, my question is, what, you know, you could say that being heterosexual is more, um, is healthier in some outcomes than being straight. But that's like saying being white has, leads to you being more likely to be wealthy in our culture than being black does. Well, telling them that isn't going to make them white. And really the reason they're disadvantaged is because you made them that way. <laughs> or rather than saying you, the society we have built has made them that way. So the, when you do this, just, there's plenty of statistics that show that gay people have successful long-term relationships. There's lots of statistics that say their children raised in gay relationships are as healthy or healthier than those raised in heterosexual relationships. There is plenty of studies that show this. Usually what happens is we're using old data that was poorly formed. It, so for example, one of the studies that I used to quote a lot when I was you know, in my old position, it talked about outcomes of, of gay people. So then I looked into where did they get their data set from gay people from? Well, if your data set comes from, some of them were prisons. That's where they had access to gay people. So they surveyed all of the gay people in prison on their sexual behaviors and compared them to the heterosexual non-prison populace. Wow. Well, that's going to give you warped statistics, yes. Yeah. Um, some of them were 
the way they would get gay people to answer their service is they would print a request in an underground gay magazine. Well, yes, that is going to give you a subset of the population that is very different <laughs> and you're, that's going to affect your results. When you compare heterosexual people that have been in, you know, in a long-term relationship with homosexual people who've been in long-term relationships, their outcomes are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, there's something very ironic about uh, evangelicals saying, well, this isn't healthy when the messages that they are saying are not healthy. And I think those messages, I think we don't give ourselves enough credit sometimes as to how far our messages actually go in society. I, that's something that as I've kind of stepped out from evangelicalism in the church, I've realized we're everywhere. We're yeah. everywhere. We're running the United States of America for crying out loud. Um, but just to summarize these, these messages, I mean, you talked about trying to split yourself and how you had to create this false identity. And that's something that my wife and I have discussed on this podcast, this need to split ourselves to some extent now, you know, mm -hmm. because we had to be the perfect missionary and stuff like that. And that caused a lot of dissonance. It, it, it's no joke to, to try and be a false self as well. This feeling that you just don't fit anywhere. Um, when I came out about parts of my journey, uh, being raised, uh, in a home that I would describe as abusive and that I would describe as narcissistic, I don't fit anymore because you're supposed to love and accept and, and go home for the holidays. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. when you don't fit, uh, that's a very, very small example, but it, it gives me just a tiny little glimpse into what it must feel like to just feel like you don't fit anywhere, no matter how hard you try. And shame, when shame is attached to um, something that you cannot change, that's something that I've, I've realized, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, your, your last podcast sucked. It's like, okay, well, I can change it. I can do better. But if you say the color of your skin makes me want to vomit, that's not right. something I can change or your, your right. ethnicity or, or your nationality or your gender. If it's something you can't change that hits really, really deep. And when it's something well, that you can't change that is associated with being revolting, uh, and this is, is this is something I talk about a lot with people because Christians say, well, it's not it's not someone's orientation because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. I struggle with sexuality too. The difference is that I fight against my bad sexual. We all have to, you know, I'd like to sleep with lots of different people, but I only sleep with my wife because that's what the Bible says. And so I understand, I don't judge you that you struggle with being attracted to guys. I just can't condone you giving into that sexuality. Mm -hmm. And there's an idea that gay Christians are just like, um, oh, just have sex with everyone, orgies everywhere. The Bible doesn't matter anymore. You can do whatever you want as long as you feel it, uh, which is, is, is not fair. Um, I, and the way I answer that is the important difference. They're like, I don't see why being told that they have to say no to a certain subset of sexual behaviors is so destructive to them. All of us have to say no to certain, you know, impulses we have. And that's true. 
all of us have to say, have to have control over your sexuality and have to say yes and no to various things at various times. The difference is when you're straight, you have hope that there is some kind of acceptable outlet for your sexuality at some point. Um, so, you know, growing up, you're in this purity culture that says that everything you want to do right now is bad, but someday you're going to get married. So there's hope. When you're a gay teenager, there's no hope because you will never, unless your orientation changes, there is never a way for you to be in a meaningful relationship. There's never a way for you to be honest about what you're going to do. And there's never a way for you to be acceptable within the culture. That is what makes it so damaging. Telling them that, and, and you know, and saying, well, those that are gay are called to celibacy. And I'm like, I am not down on celibacy. Like I have friends that are gay that are celibate and they are living out that calling in wonderful, beautiful ways. And I want to encourage them in that. I have straight friends that are living out a call to celibacy and it's beautiful, wonderful friends that, you know, they're in their life. To say point blank, everyone within the subset, I, I often would have these conversations about celibacy and, and I would say, could you be celibate? And they're like, no, thank God I wasn't called. I don't have that spiritual gift or I wasn't called to that. I could never do that. So why do you think it's okay to tell every gay teenager in your church that they are called to celibacy and yeah. that that's going to be a successful and life-giving thing to them? Yeah. Um, and, and if that's not, then what can we present to them that would be the most life-giving thing to follow Jesus? I still believe that, that you know, monogamous long-term relationships are the best plan for sexuality. But if there's not even an option to do that for LGBT people, then, then what are they supposed to do? This gets into whole other conversations that because LGBT umbrella includes a lot of other things. Um, and, and each of those have to speak on their own for that. But, uh, but we don't even give options to anyone who's in that umbrella, except marry someone of the opposite sex and suck it up and don't talk about it <laughs> or be celibate and live without community because this is the churches say be celibate but our evangelical churches suck at making space for even heterosexual celibate people yeah it's true we we don't have cultures where where being single is respected and held up well all of our leaders are married um if you're not married over a certain age, you're seen as sad or concerning, mm -hmm. um, which brings us to another assumption is, is that, and I, I know this isn't there, and I faced a lot as a youth pastor, the assumption that all gay people are pedophiles. Yeah. Um, it was on my list, but I... It's just simply not true and horrendously effect, um, offensive. But more than that, this assumption actually makes our church is more dangerous. Yeah. It actually empowers abuse within our churches because our entire child protection policies have centered around keeping people of the same gender together. 
And rather than building robust protective policies, we just say, well, only guys can be with guys and only girls can be with girls. Okay, we've done all of the work we need to do. No, you haven't. You've just told the people that are um, same-sex attracted that they can stay in your community as long as they don't talk about their struggle and they can have meaning uh, they can have meaningful community as long as they lie so yep. putting people who are yep. disintegrated yep. in their sexuality who do not have safe secure social networks those are actually the people whether you're straight or gay that is more likely to be an environment where um, being in a illicit sexual relationship is going to seem like a better option on things. Mm -hmm. So now we have created an environment that channels people into that, gives them no supports, no background, no accountability. No one should be doing children's or youth ministry without accountability, <laughs> without process. You know, I, I've been in youth ministry for almost 30 years now. I've lost count of the number of youth pastors I know who were fired from ministry for sleeping with kids in the youth group. All but one of them were straight. Mm -hmm. Just saying, keep things gender separated doesn't solve the issues. Now, doing robust work, and this is something I'm very passionate about as I work with youth, because I'm open about being same-sex, yes, you should be asking me questions. I need people in my life who call me to account on my relationship to other guys. I should be having other people doing ministry in ways that other people can see what I'm doing. My phone records should be able to be asked for at any time by my church and be seen by that. I want that accountability because it protects me and the students. But this should be true of everyone, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexual orientation. These are things we need to build into, into, thing, into our churches and how we do ministry. Yeah. And we victims advocacy is something that has become huge on this podcast. And we've talked about that a lot. And I mean, one of the many issues is that um, sexual sin is just so dirty that we don't draw a line between sexual sin and sexual crimes. And yes. Sexual. And, and we've got the same way of fixing both of them when, you know, if somebody is a criminal and doing actions that are criminal, hey, that needs to be in a different category. And then just because something, according to your theology, is a terrible sexual sin, and supposedly being gay is a terrible sexual sin, that that becomes of our criminal. It doesn't mean it's a criminal, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like just because it's it's in that you know ten out of a ten of importance in your thinking then automatically it becomes, anyways, it's, it's, it's all messed up and there needs to be better distinctions in our minds. And especially when it comes to protecting kids, I think that we need to do better in these ways. And, and particularly with pedophilia, what we'll see is that is, okay, there's, there's two classes when you look at people who have had crimes committed against them, um, sexual, and I'm someone who fits into that categories. Um, they're, they're, we lump it all together, but there are different experiences with, with this. My experience was actually older students who were experimenting with their sexuality, who were experimenting on me, and that was one form of trauma. Sometimes what I've seen the most 
danger of as I work in youth ministry is straight youth pastors who are dishonest about the struggle they're having in their own marriages because it's not okay for them to talk about those struggles who then turn to the youth as their some emotional support and they get their value and meaning from the youth and then that turns sexualized in a close relationship Mm -hmm. and that is a danger that could happen to any person in ministry and we must guard against that then there are actual sexual predators who are in ministry only to get access to people so they can abuse them um and those people they actually don't care about the gender of who they're abusing we see so often particularly with pedophiles they'll go back and forth between males and females based on who they have access to at the time um and and so talking about their orientation becomes problematic because their orientation is victimizing <laughs> like they are looking for victims and what they are doing and and so focusing on gender actually stops us from seeing we we have seen pastors who are in these positions who are abusing people of both genders and never you know and then it comes out years later in life that this has been happening we're like how did this happen we created environments where we put them on such a high pedestal that their behaviors could never be interrogated or questioned. And so we gave them safe sanctuary within our communities and churches. And when we saw signs of it, we said it was more important to protect the reputation of the church and the pastor than it was to protect the kids in our communities. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens over and over. And that's again, a place where the statistics can be, can be fudged because if a man abuses a male child, well, is that homosexuality? Do we put that over in that bucket? And then that affects how we see the whole issue. Uh, Right. All sorts of ways that we can, we can bias the information in the direction. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say that abuse of minors is a problem in all cultures in all communities and has to be addressed by everyone. Now this includes the gay community because there are times where the gay community has been overly permissive of these things, just like there are times where the church has been turning a blind eye to it. So all of us need to work together to speak to, call out and stand against abuse of minors within our community. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap things up, I just want to say a couple practical things of, um, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are in a place where they don't know what they believe right now and don't know how to respond. And it it can be scary to talk about these things, because when you start talking to other people, I think for people that are processing these questions for this first time, if they're processing them with people who have themselves been traumatized by these things, Hmm. you traumatize people without even meaning to. And so there's almost a fear of, I don't want to talk about this because I don't know the language. Um, And number one, so let me say a couple of things. Number one, let people know that you are processing and ask who is safe to process with. Mm-hmm. So, so not every gay person is here for your benefit to process your questions on things. 
So being honest and saying, I'm asking questions about these things. Is it okay to talk to you? And they go, no, then don't. Also, you know, there's a whole thing of if you're asking someone to, uh, to provide emotional support while you process these things, what do they get out of that? <laughs> I do this because I, I feel called to do it to help build a safer world for more youth. And, and um, I've worked very hard professionally to put boundaries about this, but even I have to put limits to how much I'll do it because there are some days I'm just like, no, I, I'm not in a safe emotional space to do this. So just be aware of that as you're processing these things that, that there's a, a power in that. Um, number two, I would say you don't have to have it all figured out to ask questions. Um, and so I would say read widely, hear different sides of things. If you have simple solutions to things, it's actually probably not the right answer. We didn't even have time to get into the whole nature versus nurture argument, which is fascinating. I could spend a whole session talking about that. The truth is, it's incredibly complex. No one knows the full answer to it. <laughs> um, and it's probably not one thing for all people in all situations. So nature and nurture interact in complex ways around different things. However, that whole theoretical debate comes back to real people's lives. And whether it was nature or nurture that created this, they what we do know is it's not something you willingly flip on and off like a light switch. It's largely... Even when sexual orientation can shift over time, it's never consciously controlled. It's something that happens. And so we have to ask, how do we live in the reality of this? Hmm. All of these theoretical discussions are people and they affect people's lives. Um, I'd say be aware that how we talk about this impacts people in ways we don't know. How many times that I have been in the rooms when Christians were talking about gay people thinking, we can talk however we want here, we're all straight. And I'm sitting there going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so be conscious of that. Um, read widely. Don't just read the things that you agree with. I try, I read crazy fundamentalist stuff. I read crazy liberal stuff. I read things in between. Um, and, and try and synthesize on the other side of it. Look for the people whose lives are exhibiting the gentleness and the respect of Jesus. Um, if the people you are quoting for your theology are the ones that are living in ways that are harming other people and are thriving off of controversy and excluding people, those are not the voices to listen to. Uh, I, one of my favorite authors is um, Justin Lee. He wrote a book called Torn. He was the leader of what used to be the Gay Christian Network. Um, and I've met him in person a couple times. He's, respect, uh, he, he's so respectful and honest and doing really hard dialogue and committed to bridging the gap between people asking questions on things. Um, you can check out his, uh, his just, um, you can Google his name and it'll come up with uh, what he's doing now. 
but uh, his ministry is all about building bridges and listening to people who you disagree with. And I admire him tremendously. Good example in that. Um, long conversations with people who are, you know, who are not there yet, but take time to process and give yourself grace in this. You know, I talked to my mom and my poor parents, because I get to go around all over the world and talk about, you know, the trauma of my Christian upbringing. And then they feel horribly ashamed and embarrassed and sad about how all the ways I was hurt growing up. Understand my parents were two wonderful, loving people who did the best with the tools that they had on hand. And I do not fault them in any way for how they raised me. One of the things my mom says is, Brian, you've had years to process through your sexuality. I had 30 seconds from when you came out to when I opened my mouth. Sorry, I didn't get it right, right away. (laughs) And understand all of us go through that process. What I was teaching 20 years ago embarrasses and shames me now. And I disagree with 90% of it. Who knows where I'll be in 20 years from now. So be gentle with yourself as you're figuring things out, but in everything default to love. If you're not sure, and if you're doing something because you think it's the right thing, but your gut is telling you, I see that I'm hurting someone and this doesn't feel right. Listen to that voice. Mm -hmm. The hermeneutic of Jesus is rooted in love. Jesus said that all of the laws of the Old Testament were summed up in love God and love your neighbor. And so if you're doing things, thinking you're loving God by hurting your neighbor, that should be your gut check to stop back and listen. Listen to that gut (laughs) that's telling you something's wrong here. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. You put into words some things that was like, why it was that when I heard that podcast, I wanted to jump on talking to you because I did sense, I couldn't quite put it to words, but I was like, I want to talk to somebody who's actually living this, but I don't want to traumatize them with the fact that I'm like, you know, I've heard these crazy messages that are honestly quite offensive, you know, Mm -hmm. but they're in my head. And so I appreciate you engaging with like, Hey, are gay people pedophiles or whatever? Like, it's part of the message and I appreciate you having the ability to, to dialogue about that. And, and I'd also say get to know gay people as people before you ask them all of the questions about these, you know, really yeah. controversial things. I mean, I'm, I'm professionally this, like I do this for a living. So I'm in- incredibly difficult to offend, but most people, they want to be known. They want to know that you like them as a yeah. person before they're going to feel safe opening up these things. And if you don't have contact with gay people anywhere in your life, be concerned about that. <laughs> you know, they're one, one in probably 10% of the pod, that, that's a whole other fun discussion of, of, of how do we measure what percent of the, of the population is LGBT. Let's go with the one in 10, even though it's, it's probably not true. <laughs> but as a, as, a, as a yardstick on things, you know gay people in your life, whether you know that they're gay or not. Yeah. Um, if none of the gay people in your life feel safe telling you that you're gay, be concerned about that. And get to know gay people as people, 
um, get to know, you know, we talk about the gay agenda. The gay agenda for most of my friends is wanting to pay, you know, to raise their families, live in peace with their partner and get through their crappy job, just the same as yours is. <laughs> um, so get to know their life and who they are beyond just the label of their sexuality. Yeah. And that's the same that you would ask of anybody else, you know, exactly. don't just get to know yeah. me based on one uh, strata of my life, get to know me as a human being because I'm more than, I'm more than just a label. Mm -hmm. So this is something that, um, you know, like I said, I, I've bracketed it out of my mind for a long time because uh, I knew that if I believed the wrong things, then I would probably lose my job. Mm -hmm. um, I really appreciate just being able to talk with you. Um, and There's something freeing in finally losing your job and then being like all of these things that yeah. I didn't want to look at because I, I would I would lose it. Like they now know have no you have no power over me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I drive a truck for a living. I make cement. You can't fire me. I'll say whatever I want on this damn podcast. Uh -huh. um, Anyways, uh, just, just to wrap up my thoughts, um, you know, honestly, I don't know what to do with the Bible passages. Um, you know, what you shared is, is a great start. Um, but where I'm feeling a lot more movement is just like, I can't trust evangelicalism at this point. Like I can't, uh, on science, on health, on human sexuality, on, fr I can't trust them to be free thinkers. I can't trust them to be honest in the mm -hmm. books that they publish and the research that they claim to have in their books. Like I've just completely lost faith in the publishing houses behind evangelicalism. Um, I see that there have been times when science has progressed to the point where some of us that have taken theology talked about uh, general revelation and special revelation that God mm -hmm. communicates through nature. We discover God's mind by studying it through science and God also communicates through scriptures. And we discover that by reading it and having theology and all these sorts of things. And sometimes we think we know what is true based on the Bible, special revelation, but then we learn more about the world and we're like, Oh, maybe we're not the center of the universe. Maybe we should have a <laughs> revolution. Literally, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and when, every time that we have that crisis moment, there's somebody that says, no, we just need to be a Bible fundamentalist and it never ends. Well, we don't have a good track record of Bible versus yeah. science. Science always were, wins in the end. And then we say, Oh, we always believed this and we move <laughs> on. Um, but we're getting around to a place where and it's not a Christian thing. It's um, I don't think that the ancient Greeks understood sexuality in the way that we do either. I think that I could be wrong on this, but from my understanding, we're understanding human sexuality in a different way than we have before. Um, and um, I'm not sure I want to be on the team that's saying Bible, 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 and we're not going to look at the science. I do want to look at the science and then come back and say, okay, well, I was pretty sure about this, but you know, now that I have this new information, I am prepared to re-examine some of these things. And specifically, I'm very bothered because this does touch on myself, completely different reasons for it. But I have seen messages from evangelicalism become so hurtful that they make a person not want to live anymore. 
and not just temporarily, but for a long period of time, a person that has tried everything, tried to do everything, tried to, you know, there's a saying that gets tossed around that um, people say that Christianity has been tried and found unhelpful, but really it has been, hasn't really been tried. Whoever said that was question or something like that. It's like, fuck that. We tried. <laughs> we tried. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I some mean, of the messages, like. I'd love to have a, a whole other conversation to with you about sociology of, you know, um, of how do we form people groups? How do we have people on the inside and outside? Um, you know, I often hear within gay culture of like, we just need to accept everybody and have no inside and outside. And I hear that within Christianity too. The reality is every group has inside and outside. Yeah. The question is, how do we do those? How do we treat people on the outside? How do we understand who's, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Gay culture has lots of insides and outsides to it too once you get inside it I mean even just gay is such a limiting term because you know that's just talking about one small piece of the LGBTQQ2A plus community Um, but even if you're just looking at gay people the difference between a gay club scenester in New York City and a gay person living with their husband in Kansas is universes apart. Um, And in gay culture, we have all these terms that we talk about each other about of, oh, he's a gym bunny or he, that's a twink. That's a, you know, and, and we, we do the same thing of insiders and outsiders too. This is part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. Um, So in deconstructing evangelicalism, we need to question how we're being exclusive, but also be careful because every group does this. And then you get part of deconstructionists and they start excluding each other because they haven't deconstructed this thing yet or that thing yet. Mm -hmm. And why it's central to me to come back to love yeah treating people with love and dignity and respect is the central it's the lodestar of there's so many things i don't know as i go through this christian journey but coming back to loving people like jesus is the thing that grounds me again and again yeah well said and that's a wonderful place to end this podcast (laughs) Um, all right Thank you so much for having me. Blessings on you. And uh, yeah, this has been great. Yes. Thank you for your time, Brian. And you're, you're going to send me some links. Uh, I would I love to have, really links. have links to send people to. I don't have a website. I don't have a podcast. I do that for my own mental health. I lived as a public figure for many years and you never get to turn that off. And so my thing is if people want me to speak, I'll come and speak, but I don't particularly have a place that, that I am professionally (laughs) anywhere. You can, you know, if you want to interact with me more, you can contact me at my church, uh, North Bramley United Church and buc.ca. Um, I also really recommend my former ministry. It's now called Generous Space Ministries, and it's all about 
making the church a safer place for LGBT community to be part of. Okay. So um, generousspaceministries.ca, go check them out there. I don't work for them anymore. They don't sign off on anything I say, but they're really good people. Okay. <laughs> Can you also provide, uh, I'll ask you, I'll text you this after, but I'd love to have a link to, you had said uh, there was stu a study about LGBT people within Christian community. Oh, Family outside. Acceptance Project. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then just any yeah. books that you have that yeah. would be great to read on this, because there's a right. ton written, but I assume that you've read most of them and you can filter through some of the ones not to read. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard when you start reading to find what's reliable and what's not out there. So yeah, yeah. I'll try and send you some of the ones I, I admire. And those will be in the show notes for people that want to listen. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Brian. No problem. Take care. All right. Great. Bye.